The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to year two of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a refreshing and captivating interview with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. From Eddie Olchek to Bob Costas, Mike North to Pat Foley, they reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories, some you've never heard before. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dogs since 1893. Find them on the web at ViennaBeef.com. And by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. Honor the legacy, pioneer the future. Visit them at DynamicManufacturingInc.com. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is also sponsored by Serenow Law Group, top-notch pros in reducing your rising real estate taxes. They're on the web at Serenow.com by BetUS, America's favorite sportsbook for a lot of reasons. Check them out at BetUS.com. And by the Polina Market, purveyors of the finest meats in the Chicagoland area since 1949. Visit them at PolinaMarket.com. This week we feature the best of Season 4, Part 2. I'm 26 years old, and I called Nick Polano the next day, and I said, thanks, for Nick, for waiting. I, I've got a shot at the NHL. I'm going to take it. So I'm, I'm either in the NHL that season or I'm out of hockey. So it's time for me to move on. I'm not one of those people who needs a big bon voyage party kind of a thing. You know, I'm happy to just kind of ride off into the sunset. I recorded a commercial for a play called The River Niger, N-I-G-E-R. Oh, no. Yeah, I think you know where this is going to go. Oh, no. I don't believe I did anything whatsoever to not be a part of the league that I helped build to a $4 billion business since 1992. We had to beat them again, and we lost the last game of the Babers World Series with me standing at home plate being rung up, called strike three. See you later. World Series is over. Being a place kicker is similar to being a relief pitcher in baseball in that it, it would be very helpful to warm up on the sideline before you go into a game. Six more wonderful and riveting stories from season four, including those from Pat Foley, Dan Roan, Pat Cassidy, Jeremy Roenick, Derek Jackson, and Fred Mitchell. Two of them have retired, one is about to, one is banned, another continues to part wisdom, and yet another keeps broadcasting. We begin with Pat Foley, the Hall of Fame hockey announcer for the Chicago Blackhawks, who retired after an over 40-year career, replete with great calls, some controversy, and a lot of love and respect. And when I say respect, I mean respect. So consider this, 40 years after you began your career here, some young hockey nuts out there want to be you. 
Well, um, it's a relatively weird thought, but I, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess it's probably true. And uh, I'll just say what I would say to any young person who's thinking about getting into this type of a gig. A, you better be mobile. Nobody starts as the voice of the Chicago Blackhawks. You have to go to the minors. You have to call college games. You have to, if you're doing it the right way, you should be calling different sports. Uh, you got to do interview shows. You got to, I mean, I, I remember in college, uh, working at the student radio station, I, I was a DJ. I was spinning records, you know, anything to get behind a microphone. So to get where you want to go, you're going to have to work in a couple, maybe several small towns to, you know, get to your destination. So you got to be mobile. Not easy to A, be married and B, be thinking about a family when you're doing it that way, but you know, that's kind of the way of the world in, in broadcasting. So, you know, I certainly would never discourage anybody, but get, you got to understand what you're getting into. You, you better be mobile and, um, you know, understand what the whole process is going to be. It's funny when you said spinning records. When I interviewed Marv Albert and I, I said, you know, tell me a story I don't know just to begin with, he said, I was a disc jockey at Syracuse. So that's the way he began his career. But you did go to Michigan State, and basically that's where your career blossomed from there, and then you started at Grand Rapids. Well, uh, there was one interim step. Um, but, yes, I, I was lucky enough to uh, – they had a student radio station. Now, that's a big campus. There's 45,000 students there. I went there because they had a great telecommunications department. Uh, USC would have been the other possibility. That was too far away, too expensive, couldn't go there. I got into MSU, um, I was thrilled to do it, went up there not knowing one soul out of 45,000, uh, but I knew what I was there for, so, um, you know, very focused on any broadcasting classes that I had, and um, helped me with where I was going. Out of school, the first job I could get, I was, I was actually Mark G. and Greco, I was a TV guy on a, um, on a CBS station in the Flint Saginaw market, W-E-Y-I. And so I, I was doing the TV sports every night. They had a 5.30 sportscast. Uh, excuse me, 5.30 newscast. I did my three and a half minutes of sports. I was glad to have a job. It wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to be a play-by-play -play guy. But I got a job out of school. It was huge to have that. And all my other Spartan buddies were like, dude, this guy's on TV. He's on Channel 25. He's on TV. I was making $7,000 a year. I actually had to... Uh, I, I needed a roommate to live in Clio, Michigan, to be able to survive uh, that year. But during that year, I was covering both the Flint Generals and the Saginaw Gears as part of my job, and um, uh, they let me know, there were some people at each team that let me know, there's a team moving from Toledo to Grand Rapids in the middle of the season. They pulled a Bob Ursay. They picked up stakes in the middle of the night and left and went to Grand Rapids. So I got a hold of the local owners there and said, look, at you know, you need a guy. Yeah, we need a guy. So sent him a tape. They gave me the job. So I was the voice of the Grand Rapids Owls for um, a couple of years and, and um, doing their PR. And you know, the play-by-play -play was very little. Uh, I was doing sales. I was trying to sell T-shirt night and season tickets and everything else. But it was a great experience. So then how did you land the Blackhawks job? Well, as you may remember, uh, the Blackhawks were – really having a hard time after, after Bobby Hull left in the late 70s and never won a playoff series or anything. So 
they were in trouble broadcasting wise because they had a they were in the middle of a contract on the old WCFL, which is now AM one thousand. And that station was sold. WCFL was sold to somebody. Whoever it was was God Squad. They were going twenty four hour religion. They went to the Blackhawks in the middle of the summer and said, Yeah, we know we got a contract with you, but you know, we don't want you. If you don't like it, sue us. So now the Hawks are sitting there without a radio station. They also had a guy doing the broadcast the year before. I think his name was Ron Oaks, who had lost his voice. Oh, Andy McWilliams. Andy, whispering Andy. That's right. Andy McWilliams lost his voice. He actually had a voice when he came here in 1978. Bully keeps it in for Chicago. Bully back in the net. Turning. He tried to stuff it in. Boulder have a backhand shot. Portolo couldn't score. Now Bully in oh. They had the color guy finish the 79-80 season, so they need a. They got no station. They got no broadcaster. I better let them know I'm around. I sent the stuff in. So now, and by the way, the Grand Rapids Owls had folded at the end of the 79-80. So I need a job. I let the Hawks know I'm around. I'm applying to other minor league teams. I get hired. I I have a job offer from the Erie Blades. God bless them, Nick Polano in in Erie, and. So now it's getting into September. I, I haven't heard from the Hawks. Nick finally calls me. You know, training camp starting next week. You know, what are, you, are you, what are we doing? I said, Nick, will you give me one more day? He did. So I called a certain person of the Blackhawks and, and said, uh, I know you can't promise me anything. Do I have a shot at this job? And they said, yes, you do. We don't know where it's going to go, but you have a shot. So now I'm sitting, I'm 26 years old. And I called Nick Polano the next day, and I said, thanks, for Nick, for waiting. I've got a shot at the NHL. I'm going to take it. So I'm, I'm either in the NHL that season or I'm out of hockey. And that's the way it worked. I got the job. And nobody remembers this, George. The start of the 1980 season, the first several games of the year, yeah, the first five games of the year were not broadcast. They didn't have a radio station yet. So they make a deal, a deal with WEYI an old FM station that was right next to WGCI. I can't remember the call letters, but what I know is in, in the stadium, you couldn't hear WEYI, but they had an outlet, um, and I got a call from Bill Wirtz's secretary right before game three of that season. Mr. Wirtz wants to see, to see you down uh, tomorrow night, so come on. Okay, so I go down there. I make a deal, and uh, so I... I broadcast, I think it was game six that year, was my first game on the air, which was the night they retired Stan Makita's jersey. Major League Baseball is underway, and BetUS is your home for every game, plus the NBA and NHL playoffs and the PGA Tour. Sign up now, and first-time bettors will get a 125% bonus with our promo code STORY22. That's STORY22. Future odds, live betting, and great parlay plays also await you at BetUS. BetUS. You bet, you win, you get paid. Go to BetUS.com and remember our code, STORY22. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. 
We return with the best of season four, part two on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. Pat Foley lasted nearly 42 years. Dan Roan has worked 45, and in May will ride off in the sunset 38 of those years at WGN-TV. But it's time to move on for this prototype of professionalism. Rounding the final turn is where I am. You know, I've been at GN now 38 years, and I was in Champaign for seven. So that's 45, which is... More than two-thirds of my lifetime, if I'm doing the math. I didn't know we had to do math on this podcast, but I guess I did. And uh, Yeah, so it's time for me uh, to, to move on. I'm not one of those people who needs a big bon voyage party kind of a thing. You know, I'm happy just to just kind of ride off into the sunset. So in other words, you don't want to roast like Mark Greco, which, by the way, was quite an experience you and I attended. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of fun i you know if, if we are going to have some kind of a function i'd really have it be more like rich kings was at, at harry carries where yes. everybody and just say hi you know i i was there then has it simply just become too much of a grind well it's different you know uh when i first began all we had was a 30 minute newscast at nine o'clock and now we have i want to say 13 and a half hours of news and news-related programming every day. It might be more than that. I'm not sure. I'd have to count it up. But I do the six. Right now, I do the six, the nine, and then we have GN Sports. Let's head out to Arizona where we have our very own Dan Rohn and Josh Ryman covering everything. It seems like it's a mad dash for the Cubs out there. It's a mad dash for everybody, JP. Uh, that's the way baseball is right now with this lockout finally having ended and everybody officially beginning training camp today. So we have that every night at 1030. It was five days a week. Now that's seven days a week. Uh, not that I'm doing every day, but, uh, you know, you do get home late. I don't get home till close to midnight every night. And uh, it is getting to be a little bit more of a grind. When GN did announce that it was going to do GN Sports, what did you think? Did that kind of hasten the moment for you to say, wait, this is way too much? And welcome in again, Dan Rona and Jared Payton. Nice to have you with us tonight for GN Sports. No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I was interested to see how they had it mapped out and uh, Bob Vorwald was in charge of most of that and I think the format of it is pretty good uh, it's kind of uh, the same thing in a way every night but you know there are different things to talk about every single night um, and I wouldn't say it hastened it uh, but what did hasten it if there was one particular thing would would have been the pandemic so sure. yeah it's it's uh it's dried up some of the fun, uh, certainly. So that's a big part of it, I think. Well, so what is the next chapter for Dan Rowan? 36 holes every day, doting on the grandkids, maybe still dabbling in the business? I think I said earlier that if GN wants me to be kind of a, you know, fifth wheel or whatever, I'm, I'm happy to come over there and help some. Uh, so I, I might do that. I really don't have any interest in running a podcast or a website or any of that kind of stuff. When you look at it in total, I've done pretty much everything there is to do. 
Well, I've, I've not covered an Olympics, and I, that will be one thing that I will not uh, get a chance to do, but that's okay. Yeah, but beyond that, um, I have a lot of charity work that I have my eye on. Um, and then the grandkids, hopefully we'll have more than the three. And then, yeah, playing some golf and traveling with my wife. I think that'll pretty much cover it. All I can say is it sure seems like you've lived a charmed life. Oh, George, uh, we didn't have much when I was growing up. And sports were my salvation. I mean, I, like I said, I played five sports in Iowa. You could pick and choose if you're a school uh, when you wanted to play baseball. You could play in the fall, spring, or summer. And fortunately, our school chose summer. So that's when our baseball season was. And I played football in the fall. Uh, basketball and then golf was in the spring in Iowa back then as it was in Illinois now it's in the fall and then I was screwing around in gym class one day at the high jump pit and just you know figured out a way to clear the bar in a real unconventional way that was a foul 50 percent of the time but the coach saw me screwing around with it and he said why don't you you know just jump in some meets because I know you're not going to give up a golf tournament for this but jump so I jumped in five or six of the big meets and actually finished second every time and it was crazy especially when you consider now I couldn't jump over the Keokuk phone book did you know General Motors 2021 supplier of the year is located in Hillside Illinois dynamic manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM but also as a state-of-the-art facility its capabilities include engineering new or existing products along with manufacturing machining logistics and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems I've seen their operation firsthand and their nearly 1 million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future. Imagine getting up around 2.30 in the morning for 51 years. Pat Cassidy did it until he finally retired in late 2021 as a news anchor at WBBM News Radio in Chicago. Cassidy has a multitude of stories, only this one is about as ignominious as it gets. I worked at uh, WBMX, an urban station. Yes. You ready for this story? I'm ready. This is something you, this hasn't been on the air before. This truly is something that you don't know. Uh, this is, uh, and I'm going to keep it respectful and clean it up and make it as politically correct as I can, because this is an egregious radio boo-boo. I mean, this is, a, this is a major mistake. This could be one of the worst egregious mistakes in Chicago radio history, and that's not hyperbole. You sure you want to hear this story, George? Is this a mistake that you made? Yes. Oh, yeah. By all means, Mr. Cassidy. Okay. Now, let me preface it <laughs> by saying this is a doozy. It couldn't happen today, I don't think. This was early 70s, early 70s. Working for a rock station, WGLD, did the morning news. Rock and roll staff was all white, if I remember, including me, obviously. 
They switched to an urban format, which is black, uh, and fired everybody. Me too. They called me up a couple of days later and said, I'd like to talk to you about, you know, being the news morning newsman again. I said, oh, okay. Well, you know, I'm not, uh, he said, we know you're not, uh, but we still like to talk to you. You can't have an all black staff anymore. You can have an all white staff. So you're well-respected and we hear great things. So I talked to them. They hired me. I did the morning news there at WBMX. Again, an all black station. I was the only white guy on the air there, but I was, I thought it was fascinating and I loved it. Well, Part of my job after I got off the air was to record commercials, production. You know, you know about that. We've been doing yep. it years, but still did it. And we had an automated system. You did a commercial, you put it on the cart, put it in the carousel, it played. And it wasn't like someone was there doing it live or even running a board. There was a DJ there live. It was in an automated system, kind of ran by itself. Well, again, let me preface this by saying, this is not my heart. This is if you know, know me, you know this is not Pat Cassidy. But I recorded a commercial for a play called The River Niger, N-I-G-E-R. Oh, no. Yeah, I think you know where this is going to go. Oh, no. And I recorded it. And I don't know, I, I'd never heard of Niger, N-I-G-E-R. It's a country in Africa. And there's a river, the River Niger. And you know, there was no pronunciation guide on this copy. So I thought it was pronounced the N-word, which I will not say. It's an offensive, gross word, and I don't use it myself. I agree. It's hurtful, and we will not say it today. But your listeners know what that is. And I read the commercial as such. Critics rave about the River Niger. But I didn't say Niger to get my drift. Uh, your whole family will enjoy the River Niger. Oh. Uh, and so on and so forth. And I recorded the commercial like that put it in this carousel, went back, didn't give it a second thought, went back, did production. Half an hour later, the boss came in, Rudy Ronald's his name, black man, talking to himself, talking to the ceiling, saying, man, I don't know what. We're on the air with this format for three days. Somebody's saying the N-word on the air here. We're getting calls, and I don't know who it is. I don't know what's going on. I said, oh, my God, that's terrible. That's horrible, Rudy. I think, ah. All I can think of is I did the commercial this morning for that play, The River Niger, but you didn't use that word. He said, what? Yeah, it's not, it's, it's Niger, not what you said, you idiot. <sighs> he runs upstairs, pulls the cart out of the machine. I'll never forget the tape spilling all over the floor. And I got called to the boss's office and I thought, okay, this is it. I'm about to get fired. And we went in, talked. The boss, the general manager is black, everybody black to me. And uh, and I could see there was almost a tiny little smile in their corner of their mm. mind. Tiny. Because they, <laughs> even though it was a terrible event for the radio station, they knew me. They could tell by my naivete and my stupidity. It was not malicious. It was a complete accident. And they didn't fire me. And I stayed and continued working there for the next year and a half, two years. And, and it will go down in history. I counted it up a number of times. That commercial ran a number of times. I said that word, that horrible word in that commercial. And I said the N-word on an all-black radio station in Chicago over 30 times. And lived a terrible about it. My career flourished after that. And and it almost got derailed right there. So if that's not the most egregious uh, mistake in 
Chicago radio history. It's certainly in the top two or three, wouldn't you say? Where have you gone, Jeremy Roenick? A star player in the NHL for 20 years and scorer of over 500 goals, the affable Roenick also became a target when he appeared on a podcast and uttered some words that got him fired as an analyst for NBC TV. Roenick was suspended in 2019 and subsequently fired several months later for these comments he made on the popular podcast Spit and Chicklets. This is an edited version. This older lady was sitting there with her husband and she walked right into the pool and comes right up to us and say, okay, what's the situation? Are they both with you? And I said, yes, they are. And then Catherine gives you me- You are lying. And Catherine says, will you shut up? <laughs> she, she starts yelling at me because uh, I play it off like, you know, we're going to bed together all, every night, the, th the three of us. And um, now if it, if, it, if it really came to fruition, that would re be, really be good, but it's never going to happen. I know in my, in my own heart that- um, that I didn't hurt anybody. I know in my, I, and I, and I know from the people that I talked to, the people that were involved, that I didn't offend anybody. I believe it was stemmed from one person, and you know, stuff like that happens. And um, I'm good in my skin. You know, my wife loves me, and my wife was part of the whole uh, topic of conversation, and she doesn't have a problem with me. Um, and if she doesn't have a problem with me, I don't see why anybody else would have a problem with me. So. You know, sometimes people just like to uh, just talk negatively because their because their own life is maybe not as uh, as glamorous or or as um, as fulfilled. But I, I've, I'm I'm good in my skin. I've I've done a lot of great things in this in this world and in this life. I've given charity. I've helped underprivileged kids. I've mentored uh, kids that have needed help. I've mentored kids that have been uh, tragically injured in in accidents and become their mentors and their big brother and, and aided them in financial aid and helping them raise money. I've, uh, you know, I'm nice to people. I am really good in my skin and one little stupid dismissal for something that was really minor is not going to, is, is not going to dictate or have any emphasis uh, on, on Jeremy Roenick's storybook. So, JR, take me back to the lawsuit that you filed against NBC after you were fired by the network in 2020. You claimed you were fired for being a heterosexual, and the judge tossed it out but allowed a part of it to continue. Why did you make that claim, and where does the case stand as we tape this in early February? Well, for reasons that I can't really uh, explain too much of of the suit or the situation with NBC. Um, I guess the best thing that I could tell you is that there were um, irregularities in my firing and um, I, uh, for things that happened and contract reasons, um, certain contract reasons that were, that weren't uh, followed properly. Um, so I, I sued on that basis and, you know, I had every right to do that. And I, and I exercised my right to be able to, um, you know, to go after NBC and sue them. And all, all you know, all turned out well. And uh, we, we resolved the situation um, mutually between myself and NBC and ended the situation and parted ways. And uh, on my life and I'm sure their, their lives have been much better since. So uh, I do want to say I'm, I'm happy with um, with uh, our resolvement and getting the issue out of the way and behind us. And, 
you know, that's, uh, that's how life goes. So it was mutually agreed on. And, and uh, I think we're both happy to be done with the situation. So do you see yourself at all being part of the NHL in your future? I don't know. It's a good question. Um, you know, I don't, I don't believe I did anything whatsoever to not be a part of the league that I helped build to a $4 billion business since 1992. I think not, not only the way that I played, but the way that I entertained, uh, the way that I treated the fans. I think the way that I exercised myself as an analyst, um, being honest and being, you know, being entertaining to the fans to watch. Um, I can't tell you how many people I see in a course of a day, week, month that ask me if I'm going to get back on television to, to do what I do very well and how much they miss me and say how it's not the same without me, which is a very gracious thing to say. And I really appreciate that. You know, the National Hockey League is uh, has always been, you know, one of my favorite, favorite sports and favorite organizations uh, of all time. If they want to cancel me out or or keep me away from their sport for reasons that, that I believe are very minute. I mean, there are people in this game that have done some pretty terrible things, awful things, things that have been uh, involved with, with the law, with uh, breaking the law, all sorts of different things that are still associated with the national hockey league and are still in the national hockey league. And for somebody like me to be banished for what many will call ridiculous reasons, whoever, whatever your stance is, I think is, is kind of silly, but it's their, it's their call. But hockey is always going to be a big part of my life. And the NHL will always be a big part of my life. But um, I do believe that there's a lot of people out there that are missing my commentary, missing my, uh, my entertainment factor, my honest factor. And, if it happens, it happens. Uh, we'll, we'll see. But I'll, I'm not holding my breath, to tell you the truth. Vienna beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog. Drag through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, cups, and socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. Darren Jackson is the longtime analyst on Chicago White Sox broadcast. He's a Southern California guy with plenty of stories growing up, and here are just a few of them. You grew up in Southern California, and we do have at least one thing in common. We're both babies in the family, only it kind of ends there because I had two siblings, you had five. We call that a full house. 
Yeah, I'm the baby of six. Um, I guess I'm kind of, in a sense, spoiled because my mom, by the time she got down to me, it was she'd learned all the other things to do with the older kids than not. So I was kind of spoiled in, in the sense that uh, uh, she didn't demand as much from me as she did from the others. So it was pretty good. Your parents split up when you were very young. I think you were two years old. So you were probably too young to understand that. But eventually, what impact did they have on you? Mom, first of all, you know, taking care of six kids on her own, and and she was uh, in food service, so she was a waitress for a lot of years, and um, that that was impressive because the number one thing to her was taking care of her kids, and that was it. She was like Mama Bear. Anybody did anything or said anything about her kids, she was in your face quickly and ready to defend them. Um, and you know that the, the thing is, even though you don't grow up with your father around, he went back to Philadelphia because my mom split. And uh, he just said, that's it. I'm going back to Philly. Um, saw him a couple of times growing up, really. That was it. But in the end, I, I, I recognized the fact that my, my father was a very good athlete. Actually, the San Francisco Giants uh, wanted to sign him to a contract before he actually had entered the Air Force. He, he didn't realize it. And he'd already signed to go to the Air Force. And he didn't end up uh, going to them. He was a pitcher. And he was a good basketball player. He played for like the the Air Force intramural teams all the mm. time, traveled all the bases and played. And those are the two sports, you know, that I ended up uh, excelling in when I was when I was uh, growing up. So it's kind of interesting, even though you're not around, you know, uh, a parent genetically that that connection pushes you in the direction. And it's not like, you know, my mom and everybody was saying, oh, your dad was a great baseball player or basketball player. It just kind of happened. My mom pushed me to baseball. Actually, I didn't want to play baseball when I was seven years old. She made me go play. And then she made me go play when I was eight. And then by nine, I said, there's no need to argue. She's going to make me go play. So I just kept playing and it worked out. Well, so here you are as a kid in Southern California, you're playing baseball in a very unlikely place. Tell me a story I don't know, whether you saw stars along with fly balls. <laughs> yeah, Culver City, California. Um, a lot of people, I'm sure that are movie buffs are aware that that's the, the, the home of MGM Studios, now MGM Sony Studios. But um, yeah, you know, you, you had the tendency to actually see movie stars driving down the street or they were filming shows uh down the street uh, down the street from my house a little hotel was there they're filming tv shows in that hotel but the best part was as a kid climbing over the back lot fences we weren't supposed to be back there but we climb over the back lot fences and play in these shells of old world war ii looking airplanes and jeeps and you walk down uh what's what appears to be a, a brownstone street in new york just vacant there but it's just a facade it looks like it's brownstones but um you walk down these streets and you'd feel like you're in a different world so it was quite the fantasy land for kids in culver city that's for sure did you ever run into some stars did you ever you know or were you one of those starstruck kids because it sounds like it'd be unavoidable not to run into somebody like that i used to see a perfect example driving through culver city uh you remember the show chips john and punch Yes. Okay. So these guys would be driving through the city on the back of a trailer on two motorcycles with no wheels, with a camera in the truck bed in front of them. And they'd be talking and you'd see them. Oh, they're not driving down a freeway, really talking on a freeway next to each other. It's the back of a trailer being pulled through the city and making it look like they're actually in motion. So <laughs> you see stuff like that. I remember seeing Patrick Duffy from, uh, 
I can't remember the name of the show. It was Aquaman or something along those lines. But uh, Patrick Duffy was a big TV star. The the series The Rookies was a big thing in the yeah. 70s. They filmed that right down the street uh, in the hotel that I was talking about. So, yeah, you had the occasion to see them uh, filming and working. And then on the occasion, again, driving just in their vehicles through the city, leaving from work or, or going to work. I'm going to correct myself in the fact that I said that you never played in a playoff game, but you really did. Tell me what it was like as a 14-year-old to play in the Babe Ruth World Series. Uh, yeah, that's, you know what, it's crazy. As, as much as I've got to remember about my big league career and all the things I accomplished, boy, that's one of the most memorable parts of my baseball career because it was such a great group of guys. We were known as the heartbreak kids that year, having to come out of the loser's bracket a lot, all, all the way up to playing in the Babe Ruth World Series in Newark, Ohio in 1978. And yeah, we, we, uh, we went through the whole thing. We lost the first game of the World Series to, uh, to Nashville, had to go down the loser's bracket. We won, I believe five straight games to come back or four straight games to come back to face Nashville again. Um, we beat them the first game and we had to, we had to beat them again. And we lost the last game of the Babe Ruth world series with me standing at home plate being rung up called strike three. See you later. World series is over. Would you like to save money? <laughs> Who wouldn't? How about saving money on your real estate taxes? I have and did so thanks to Serenal Law Group, accomplished professionals ready to put money back in your pocket. All Chicago properties were reassessed by the Cook County Assessor's Office, and some of you got eye-opening increases. Serenal Law Group has the ability to lower that. The deadline to file your 2021 appeal is 30 days after your township opens for appeals at the Board of Review, so don't waste a minute contacting Serenal Law Group so you can save. There are no fees, so you don't have to pay a dime unless they save you money. And take it from me, they've saved me thousands. And they do it in a professional and friendly manner that makes your life a whole lot easier. Serenal Law Group handles appeals throughout the greater Chicagoland area from residential, commercial, or industrial property. They're ready to fight on your behalf, so you don't pay more than your fair share. Visit their website, serenow.com, that's S-A-R-A-N-O-W, or call them at 312-373-0015. Mention promo code OFFMAN, that's O-F-M-A-N, to get a discounted fee on your 2021 property tax appeal. Contact Serenow Law Group, S-A-R-A-N-O-W, and start saving. Fred Mitchell is a trailblazer, from kicking a football to having an award named after him, to inventing, to being a consummate beat writer for the Chicago Tribune, an author, and a man whose invention is just about seen at any football game. Before you began an award-winning career as a journalist, you fashioned one as a kicker at Wittenberg College in Ohio, where you established an NCAA single-season scoring record. A career record. Career, it was a career record. And, and what, you weren't good enough for the NFL or the AFL? Well, my biggest issue was that I didn't get a chance. You know, looking back, things I'll try to say things happen for a reason. For those who pay attention like I do uh, to the circumstances in the NFL, uh, over the past 60 years, uh, there's been one African-American place kicker. I'm not talking about a punter, place kicker in the NFL, you know, on a regular basis. There's a guy named Gene Mingo, and he was also a halfback with the Denver Broncos. 
so coming out of college, a small college like Wittenberg, even though I'd set a bunch of records in the national record, there was no social media then. Uh, nobody had agents. Uh, the draft itself was in January. And uh, so you didn't have a lot of opportunities there. And uh, I, I did have an uh, area scout for an NFL team. I, I won't say what the team it was, who uh, sent me a letter of interest. And he was going to try to arrange for me to get a, a tryout. So he had asked for more personal information from me. And also asked me to send a picture of me kicking. And apparently that was the first time he really realized that I was African-American. So we had previously arranged to meet at the executive house on Wacker Drive, and he never showed up, and I never heard from him. So I'm not saying I would have made the NFL, but I would love to have had an opportunity to try out for a team because there were several kickers uh, that I felt I was better than uh, who did get tryouts. Uh, so that, you know, I, I would often get the comment, you don't look like a kicker, which is, I'm sure, in reference to this fact that you don't ever see an African-American mm-hmm. place kicker, uh, not only in the NFL, but and think about it in college. Uh, it was the last time you saw an African-American sure. in, in college. So that was unfortunate that it, it didn't have the opportunity. And it's part of the gratification that I get now. Uh, from the Fred Mitchell Award uh, that the National Football Foundation uh, made me the namesake for in 2009. And uh, even though uh, you've got one of these already in your trophy case, uh, so I'd like to introduce our proud winner of the 2011 Fred Mitchell Award, repeat winner Tom Lynch. Every winner that we uh, of the award uh, since 2009 has at, at the very least been looked at by an NFL team. A couple of them have, have kicked in uh, NFL uh, regular season games, Patrick Murray with Tampa Bay Bucks and uh, Cleveland Browns. Uh, Sergio Castillo uh, kicked for the Jets last year, uh, and he kicked in Canada. So I, I, I'm very proud of the fact that these smaller college kickers who otherwise might be ignored are, are given a chance because my thing is that uh, regardless of, of what level of college football you play, uh, the field is the same length. The goalposts are the same width. So if you kick a 50-yard field goal in Division three or junior college, that's the same as a 50-yard field goal in uh, Division one, right? So it's not a question of that, that comes up with at other positions you know, like a division two or division three quarterback. And you say, well, the level of competition that he's going against is not as good. So if you're a punter or a place kicker, you're not actually competing against somebody else. You're competing against uh, uh, the element. So I, I think, and I, and I use the example that Adam Benatieri, NFL's all-time leading scorer, uh, went to South Dakota. Is he South Dakota or South Dakota State? Yeah, which if we had, had the award, the award in 1996 when he graduated, he uh, might have been the recipient. And uh, we, we know how great a kicker he he was. So, and there's so many other examples of current kickers in the in the in the league uh, who come from small schools. So it really doesn't doesn't matter. You don't have to 
come from the Big Ten or the SEC as a kicker to be considered, uh, you know, top top uh, quality. So uh, I'm I'm gratified uh, on a personal level to help provide opportunities for for some. I'm not sure many people know this, Fred, but along with your career as a writer and a kicker. You're also an inventor, and it happened about the time you took the job at the Tribune. So tell me a story I don't know. What did you invent? All right. So in 1974, when I started at the Tribune, I also uh, began playing for the Chicago Heights Broncos semi-pro football team. Younger people don't realize that back then, semi-pro football was, was a pretty big deal because there weren't uh, a lot of options. If you didn't play in the NFL back then, you played semi-pro football in the States, or if you wanted to go to Canada and try in the Canadian Football League. So there's no uh, arena football or uh, any semblance of that. So I played for the Broncos, and I knew that Wilson Sporting Goods was located in Chicago, and I wrote them a three-page letter, which I still have. And I said, you know, uh, being a place kicker is similar to being a relief pitcher in baseball in that it would be very helpful to warm up on the sideline before you go into a game. And I said, particularly in football, uh, in, in late November or something like that, when it's cold and you're standing uh, on the sideline as a kicker, trying to stay loose, and then all of a sudden you're sent in to kick the, the game-winning field goal. I said, it would be nice to have a, a net uh, on the sideline uh, with a football. And my suggestion was to attach the football to a, like a, a, a rubber attachment so the ball wouldn't fly away. So I, I go into great detail in, in, in the description of this kicking net. And I say it could be used uh, during the off season uh, for practicing indoors uh, as well as on the sideline. So I sent this letter to Wilson Sporting Goods. And about a week or so later, uh, I got a letter back uh, saying, uh, you know, thank you for your time. We, we just don't feel like this fits into our brand concept, et cetera. That was that. And then shortly, sure enough, uh, this, that would have been uh, January of 75, I believe it was. And uh, shortly after that, kicking that started popping up all over uh, on a high school level, college level, pro level. So I, I wasn't smart enough to, my, my thought was that surely they will uh, see this as a, a great idea and, and, and help manufacture these kicking nets and I would be a part of the process. Uh, and I guess I was naive at that time not to, to get any, any kind of a, a pet. Oh, my goodness. Oh, you, Fred, yeah. you may I'm, never have written another word. <laughs> I know. That's, what I, that's what I tell myself. So uh, I still got the letter, you know, so whenever I, I tell people, you know, whenever you see somebody, a uh, kicker warming up uh, along the sideline, kicking into a net, think, think, about, uh, think about me in 1974. My thanks to Pat Foley, Dan Roan, Pat Cassidy, Jeremy Roenick, Darren Jackson, and Fred Mitchell for those memorable stories. 
And as always, a big thanks to TJ Reeves for putting this podcast on the map, Will Hatzel for his fine mixing and editing, and Nick Tochi for our great graphics. And to our generous sponsors, Saranal Law Group, top-notch pros who will save you money on your real estate taxes, Dynamic Manufacturing, Honor the Legacy, Pioneer the Future, and the Vienna Beef Company, home of the iconic Chicago hot dog since 1893. By BetUS, a pioneer in the sportsbook industry for almost three decades, Tune in next week for the start of Season 5 on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money.